Today's reading is taken from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22, which is on page 222 in the Church Bible. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, save everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This is the word of the Lord. It is a real privilege to be with you. Thank you for being uh, so welcoming, so warm. It's one of the great joys, I think, of the Christian life that you can travel for 30 hours and at the end of it you feel as if you're, you're with people you've never met before, but it feels like family. And it's such a joy. So thank you so much for your, your warm welcome. We're going to be looking at this passage where Jesus calls this young man to follow me. We've been looking on the church retreat at two other places where Jesus says those two words, follow me. This is the third. Um, why don't we pray together just so that we can um, have the Lord speak to us. Father, thank you so much that you brought us together this morning. Thank you that you have not left us without your word, that you have spoken to us. And I pray now that you would send your spirit so that your word goes deeply in our hearts. Oh, Father, would you have mercy on us? Please, as we leave here today, would you not leave us unchanged? In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. Uh, as you think back over your life, what is the most important choice you've ever made? What's the most important choice you've ever made? something that has changed the entire trajectory of your life. Uh, maybe it was connected with a job. Maybe it was connected with a particular relationship uh, or a place to live. What would it be? Maybe it seemed like a really small choice at the time. You didn't think much of it. But as you look back, you think, do you know what? That small choice just changed everything. Um, for me, uh, I guess it would be marrying an American woman. That would be a huge choice that, that set the trajectory of my life. It's a cross-cultural marriage, obviously. I'm British. She's American. I mean, can you imagine the stress at the kitchen table every 4th of July? Imagine what that's like. It's very stressful. But that was a huge choice. That changed everything for me. 
But I want to say this morning, there is another choice in your hands, and it is infinitely more important than any of the choices you may be thinking about. None of my teachers at school ever spoke to me about this choice, not even the best of them. Parents never spoke to me about them, and they don't typically talk about this choice, not even the best ones. You don't see this choice mentioned in the media, in newspapers, on social media. You never see it, and chances are you won't see it discussed or debated in the public square. And the frightening thing is, the frightening thing is, even though this choice will change the entire trajectory of your life, you may not even realize you have it in your hands. And the choice is this. You get to choose what to worship. You get to choose what to worship. Some of our non-Christian friends I know, and there may be uh, people here who are not believers, it's great that you're here, thanks so much for coming. And certainly my sister is not a Christian. She would say, well, this talk of worship sounds very strange. I'm not a religious person. I don't worship anything. That's the point. That's the life I'm living. But what I want to say to you this morning is this. Everybody worships. Everybody does. We cannot refuse to worship, and we cannot opt out of worshipping any more than we can opt out of breathing. It's just what we do as human beings. It's just how we're wired. As the great theologian Bob Dylan once sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. And Christian, you may not be serving who you think you're serving. You may not be worshipping what you say you worship. Just think of it. For all of us, there is someone or something that we look to for our ultimate sense of satisfaction, for our sense of meaning, for our sense of purpose. We look to this thing or this person to make us happy to make us feel like we're worthwhile human beings, that we have value, something that we desire above all other things. It's typically where most of your time and your money goes. It's what you see yourself getting in your, in your best dreams, and it's what you see yourself losing in your worst nightmares. That's an object of worship and it will shape your whole life. It'll shape who you are. And here's the scary thing. You may not be worshipping who you think you are. Um, you have Harry Potter over here. Is Harry, Harry Potter, is that a thing? Uh, my, my wife is a big Harry Potter fan, and uh, she tells me that in the first book, there is this mirror, and it's called the Mirror of Erised. And the scary thing about this mirror is that when you look into it, you see your deepest heart's desire. And actually, you don't know what you're going to see until you look into the mirror. You don't know what it's going to be. So Ron Weasley, he looks into the mirror. What does he see? He sees himself as the school captain holding aloft the Quidditch Cup in triumph. That's what he sees. 
What does Harry Potter see when he looks in the mirror? Well, he's an orphan, so he sees his parents. He just wants his parents back. That's what he sees. And Dumbledore says it shows us the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. Men have wasted away in front of it, entranced by what they've seen, or they've been driven mad. Erised, of course, is the word desire backwards. And it's a scary moment when you look into it because you don't know what you're going to see. Maybe it's a desire that you've never admitted to anybody, not even your closest friend, not a spouse, not even your pastor, something nobody else knows. But when you see it, when you see it, it's completely captivating, completely captivating. And the question is, what would it be for you? Here's the mirror. You're looking into it. What do you see? What do you see? Here's one way of discovering what it might be. Ask yourself this question. What is the one thing that if I had it, it would just make everything right? It would make everything okay. I'd be fine if I just had this one thing. Where are you putting your hope? Is it success in your career? Is it family? Is it marriage? Is it the government? Is it sex? Is it a political movement or a philosophy? Where are you looking for your hope? What is going to save you? Or put it another way, what is the one thing, if it was taken from you, would make you feel helpless? You're just terrified of losing this one thing. Is it money? Is it good looks? Is it health? What would it be? And you just think, if I lost that, life would not be worth living. Now, very often, of course, these are not bad things in themselves. These are very good things. They're good things. They're gifts of God. They're to be celebrated very often. But good things become bad things when they become God things. Good things that we turn into gods are deadly for us. When they become the thing you must have or you lose all sense of self-worth. Now, why does this even matter? Why is this such a big deal? Why does the Bible talk about this so much? For several reasons. The first is, and I realize this is, this is challenging for me as well, we may have been going to church for many, many years, and we may identify as Christians, but if what we see in the mirror is anything other than Christ, whatever it is will shape us instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will devastate our personal discipleship. It will also devastate our ability to disciple others. And secondly, because if you see anything else in that mirror other than Christ, when you turn that good thing into a God thing, it will gain absolute control over you absolute control. Just think about this. Why is it, 
Why is it back in 2008, when there was a big crash of the money market, certainly in the United States and in the UK, there was this huge crash. In 2008, we were reading in the newspapers that many of these money managers, they committed suicide. They took their own life as a result of this. And you think to yourself, why? Why would they do such a thing? It's only money. It's only money. But what if money has become your God? What if you need money in order to have any sense of self-worth? What if you need money to have any sense of hope in life or security or comfort? What happens if you lose it then? Then it's more than just money. It's more than that. If your money disappears, then your sense of value and meaning and security will disappear with it. One of my uh, great passions is uh, literature. It's what I studied at university. I love books. I love novels. And um, one of the great novelists, I think, of the last probably 30, 40 years is a guy called uh, David Foster Wallace. He was an American writer, and uh, he was not a Christian. He was not a Christian, but he totally gets this. And this is what he wrote. Just listen to these words. You get to decide what to worship. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, he says, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Can you relate to that? I, I can, I can. And which one is it for you? Money and possessions, family, attractiveness, power, intellect. For me, for a long time, the little God that I had on the throne was approval, the approval of other people. I needed that in order to feel like a worthwhile human being, and especially the approval of my parents. If I didn't get the approval of my parents, I just felt like a zero. I felt like nothing. I felt depressed. I felt miserable. I felt that life just wasn't worth living. But it might be something else for you, something else that's keeping you from truly worshipping Christ. It's something else for the man in Mark chapter 10. Let's look at verse 17 together. Verse 17 of chapter 10 in Mark. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? So you hear what he's saying. He's saying, how do I get to heaven? What do I need to do to get to heaven? And whether people are religious or not, isn't that what we all want? Don't we all want heaven? We want, in other words, a place that is totally secure and safe, a world of love, as Jonathan Edwards put it. We want a place where all of our deepest needs are met, our need to feel like we're a worthwhile human being, a sense of value. That's what heaven is, and that's what, that's what he's asking about here. Jesus, what do I need to do to find that? How do I get that? Verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. All these I've kept since I was a boy. So he's saying, in all these years I've been a regular in church. I've kept all of the commandments. I've lived a moral life. I recycle. I drive a Toyota Prius. And I only eat locally sourced kale that's sustainable. I am a very moral person. I worship God. And I've been a dutiful son. I've obeyed my parents. I've been deferential to them. Surely that's enough to get to heaven, isn't it? Maybe that's where you thought we'd end up with all of this stuff. You thought maybe I was going to stand here and say to you, try harder, be better, be more moral, be a good person, say your prayers, read your Bible more. But Jesus knows that the issue is much, much deeper than that. So much deeper. The issue is what you worship. Just look at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The philosopher Albert Schweitzer said, if there is something that you own that you cannot give away, you don't own it. It owns you. You hear that? If there's something you own and you can't give it away, you don't own it. It owns you. So what's going on with this young man in Mark chapter 10? Well, he doesn't own the money. He's very wealthy, but he doesn't own the money. The money owns him. That's his real God. doesn't matter how much of a churchgoer he may be, that is his real God. And it has its hooks in him. He's like a puppet on strings because you can see in verse 22, money makes him walk away, disheartened, sad. Money makes him do that. He's standing before the second person of the Trinity and he walks away. What makes somebody do that? 
because we don't always worship what we say we're worshiping. And my question again for us is this, what is it for you? What would it be for you? What is the one thing that if you were in in the story here, if you were parachuted into this story, Mark chapter 10, what is the one thing that you would dread Jesus asking you to give away? What would it be? With sadness, you'd find you wouldn't be able to. And you see, that is the God that you worship. And you don't own it. It owns you. Because these gods we choose for ourselves, they're not benign. They're not harmless. They do not have our best wishes at heart. They don't. For one thing, they separate us from the love of the living God who gives us life and breath and every good thing we enjoy. And Jesus warns very clearly again and again in the Gospels that if we live like that, at the end of our lives we will face God's condemnation and it will be deserved. Not only that, but as Foster Wallace says, all of these gods demand that you make endless sacrifices for them. Endless sacrifices. The God of money says to us, sacrifice your time, sacrifice your energy, sacrifice your abilities to get more of me, and if you don't get more of me, I will make you miserable. The God of power and career success says, sacrifice whatever it takes to get the right grades, the right promotion, or your life will feel meaningless. I'll make sure of it. The God of approval says, sacrifice your own convictions, your own integrity, whatever it takes to win the approval of other people. And if you don't get that approval, I will make you feel worthless. Those are the sacrifices that I demand. These gods always want you to do more. It's never enough. They're never satisfied. It was never enough for me as I tried to get the approval of my parents and other people. You know, there was never a morning where I woke up and I thought to myself, do you know what? I think I've got enough approval now. I think that's enough. You never get there. Maybe you know this from your own experience. You never get, that, get to that point. So here's the question. What do we do? What do we do with this? If we cannot not worship, how can we be free of these gods which so savagely drive us? We need our hearts to be recaptured by a better God. We need our hearts to be wooed by a kinder God who lifts your burden for you. A self-sacrificing God. You see, all these gods, they demand that you make endless sacrifices for them. But Jesus is the God who says, I have already sacrificed for you. And it's the only sacrifice you will ever need.
come to me. Come to me. What do I mean by saying that Jesus has made the only sacrifice you'll ever need? Just look at verse 21. Verse 21. And it's one of the most wonderful verses in all of Scripture, I think. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him. Isn't that wonderful? You see, Jesus knows. He can see into this man's heart. He knows that this man is living for another God. He knows that this man is a religious hypocrite, that he says he's a good church-going person who keeps all of the commandments, and yet all the time, undercover, he's worshipping money. Jesus can see that, and yet he looks at him, and he loves him. God himself loves him to the very stars. It's amazing. As one writer's put it, Jesus sees us to the very bottom of our hearts, and yet loves us to the skies. What other God does that? When you see that, it will change the entire trajectory of your life. Our greatest fear in life, I think, is being seen for who we really are and being rejected as a result. But our greatest joy is when somebody sees us for who we really are, they see us with all of our faults, all of our frailties, all of our, all of our wrongness and our shame and our guilt, they see us and yet they still love us. It's a wonderful feeling. Now, what would it feel like to be loved like that by your Creator? By God himself. (laughs) That's the way Jesus looks at you this morning. He looks at you and he loves you. Just imagine that. What if, what if the creator of the universe loved you so much that he traded heaven for mockery and scorn and homelessness and loneliness and suffering and rejection? What if he did that for you? What if the creator of the universe loved you so much that he lived out a perfect life on your behalf, one that he knows you find it impossible to live, all that so his perfection could be freely credited to you. What if? What if the creator of the universe loved you so much he willingly died on your behalf, taking the judgment that you deserve all so that you could know him and enjoy the heaven that you've, enjoyed, you've longed for all of your life. What if? He sees you to the bottom of your heart and yet still he loves you to the skies. What other God could do that for you? What other God has done that for you? Let me say it again. What you worship will set the entire trajectory of your life. Every other God, every other religion says, if you make certain sacrifices, then I will give you the heaven you long for. And you already know from your own experience, I'm sure, those sacrifices are never, ever quite enough. Jesus says, I've already made the sacrifice for you. Come to me, all you who are weary 
and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, many of us in this room are weary and heavy laden. We feel burdened, not just by things inside us, but also things out in the world. We look at Hong Kong and we feel the tensions. We see families divided, sometimes congregation, friends divided. Father, help us to see that we have given our hearts to things which have promised to save us, which have promised to give us happiness, and again and again they have betrayed us. They've driven us mercilessly, they've treated us savagely, and many of us right now will want to say to you very simply, we are sorry to have put those things in your rightful place. Even though we've thought of ourselves as followers of Jesus. We want to come to Jesus instead, the author of all happiness, all joy, all hope, all satisfaction, all contentment. Thank you, Lord, for making that possible because of what Jesus has done. Thank you that he didn't say to us, keep sacrificing for me. He said, it is finished. It is finished. I've made the only sacrifice you'll ever need in order to be accepted by me. Come to me for rest. I pray many of us would do that even now as I say these words, maybe for the first time. Father, please, in your mercy, send your spirit to change our hearts so that from now on we will no longer be ruled by these savage little gods and instead be ruled with grace and love by you. Amen.